Warm welcomes, my wayward wanderers and wayfarers. Wherever you've walked and whatever you will, wait a while as we wax whimsical and weighing the works of an award-winning writer, this time in the form of N.K. Jameson in the fifth season. As per usual, I'm with my partners in crime, BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? Wonderful, Spencer. Thank you. Well, that was a very uh, impressive welcome to this uh, book that waxes poetic every so often, and thank Mm -hmm. you for uh, doing it. And as in the past, you've... um, asked for for this to be a small segment in the podcast for drinks to go along with the uh the book i i threw together a drink that i'm not sure i love but i feel like is um somewhat appropriate i'm gonna call it icing taurus Mm. okay it do tell it's a chili infused vodka with a uh, lime and mint sparkling water well i'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole but how does it taste um kind of like i'm being iced well, I have a glass of wine um, that is a Kabsov, but it is called a Magistrate, um, which I thought was close enough to the Guardian um, yeah, that I could get fair. away with it. Because Good otherwise, I was going to have to figure out how to make safe, and like that was not something I was willing to do. <laughs> I figured I would go earthy and tried to make a mudslide, but realized about halfway through I didn't have the necessary ingredients. So I'm <laughs> drinking a beer, and we'll call that sufficient. That seems that reasonable. Is- and Quite by a the way, devolution. Um, I, I think it's very funny how it, it makes a lot of sense. And had I read the book, I probably would have pronounced it that way. But very boringly, it's called Safe in the audiobook. Is it really? It is. I don't think I agree with that. Well, fair enough. <laughs> I think that's wrong. I'm going to continue to pronounce it Safe. It, we, we, we discovered early on that we all tended to pronounce basically every word in this book differently and it kind of turned to bj for what the official rules are given that he listened to the audiobook not for this um, one though no nope. that's just wrong it's fine <laughs> <laughs> well as said we are exploring a very new work and a very award-winning work by nk jameson a writer that i wasn't previously familiar with but i believe both of you had read several of her works in the past uh i've just read one i've only read this book and actually i was discussing excuse me, with my girlfriend uh, listening to the second book because we had about eight hours of driving. We could get at least some way into uh, the next book. And I was like, well, I really feel like I shouldn't know what happens next or at least yeah. have more information than I would otherwise because then separating them is going to get complicated. So I forbore on that. So I've only, well, listened to the fifth season uh, a couple of times now. And I have um, read the fifth season, and I have read um, the second one, which I'm blanking on the name right now. Um, but it has been, I don't know, probably a year since I read it. And so I am, like, willfully forgetting what I know happens in the second book in this discussion. So you really read it fresh when it came out, though. No, I really did, because, like, the third book is out now. But wh- I distinctly remember when I read the first two, um, I could not get the third book. And so I haven't read the third book yet, but that was partially because I lost... I lost momentum in the whole thing. So there are a lot of interesting things that come along with reading this, and um, it gets me a little bit more uh, interested in some of the back uh, background and information um, because there are a bunch of different words that are used that eff- effectively you get a definition of once M.K. Jameson like, writes a bit about it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I assumed that they were very differently spelled than they were in a way that made sense to me. So um, in the book, there's comms and commless, and um, it's 
they're essentially associated with settlements and my assumption was it was spelled c-a-l-m oh interesting that the earth was calmed there Ah. and there weren't any interesting things happening However, it happens to be spelt C-O-M-M, which I assume mm-hmm. is short for community. Community or, of some sort, you know, yeah. Right, something along those lines. And now that I know that it's short for community, I wonder if there are a lot of words that aren't well-defined that are essentially portmanteaus. So there, you know, we'll probably touch on this briefly at some point, but there are geomests, which yeah. is G-E-O-M-E-S-T. And I assume it's like, all right, so it's like, geology and chemistry Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we're just going to put that together and then there are descriptions of locations and it's like so midlats and i guess my brain was like okay south middle latitude or something along those lines Mm -hmm. you got that one right but it doesn't actually say that that's what it is no this is a book that really it drops you in the middle of it and Gives you maybe enough to find your way, but really expects you to play catch up as you go. Um, and, and really, let's be fair, it, it drops you in the middle of it, but it actually drops you in the middle of essentially three different books, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit at the outset about how we are going to structure the next part of our converse, the next few weeks of our conversation as well. Yeah. Um, so there are three main characters. Uh, they are Demaya, Cyanite, and Esun, um, and they each are progressing through different parts of their lives. Um, and as we sort of discussed, that we'll probably start with Demaya, as she is the youngest, and that'll get us a little bit into the, I'll call it magic of the world, and a little bit of the various casts um, that are present in this world that are essentially somewhere between uh, job titles, uh, casts as, you know, they're more commonly understood and known, and uh, body type, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it seems there's a certain genetic element at play by which cast you fit into, which cast you're best suited for. Um, um, and there, there was a specific sentence that I recall you reading and exclaiming to uh, our, our group text as a, well, I guess it is a body type thing um okay the breeder yeah tonky yeah um so so yeah it it was kind of interesting that um so the list of use casts is strong backs resistance breeders innovators leadership uh among some other ones and it seems that a lot of them seem to go along with phenotypes rather than just uh bloodline well but those are phenotypes that are related to um essentially um not countries but locations um and kind of history as to what happened where and who conquered who um but also a lot of those kind of use um categories span um different areas where you came from as well so it's like it is phenotype based but some of that is also like location based too so they kind of intermingle well, let's go farther back in terms of how these things develop. Because the, the, I think the author really started with an interesting question of how would a world function and develop in the case of it being so incredibly tectonically unstable that it essentially function in a series of cycles that, that come to an ending and have to be reborn from that. 
And that's really the world of stillness that we come across, a planet whose crust is so horrendously fractured and so incredibly tectonically active that the entire world and all aspects of the culture are built around weathering the apocalypse as best you can for when it inevitably is coming next. Well, but I guess that it's going gonna, it's gonna to get hard to talk about these because a lot of these uh, little tidbits that we get are sort of in chapter headings mm-hmm. um, and little quotes after that, but uh, and little tidbits of history that random characters drop, which are sometimes you probably can take them as, as true, but sometimes who knows. Um, mm. There seem to be periods between apocalypse that range from you know tens of years to hundreds of years and sometimes thousands of years and it's very unclear what defines those differences it's very unclear to the characters too of where what knowledge they have is relatively recent in terms of the of the archaeological record i mean they've got this knowledge stone lore that is passed down through each generation of the principles that you need to know to survive as a community whenever the next fifth season the next blackness that encapsulates the world comes but it really only goes back so far. The current society that they're in, as far as they know, is the only one that's ever lasted through more than one-fifth season. But they live in the ruins of countless forgotten societies before that, seemingly those that failed, seemingly those whose stone lore was not up to snuff to endure. And so we're kind of left in the same position of the characters of where they know very little beyond the immediate and beyond what oral traditions are passed down. And everything else they just kind of have to learn as they go in terms of exploring the world. Yeah, And I think and we should the- say at the outset... Um, that that kind of oral tradition and stone lore, we learn throughout the course of this book um, that what is passed down in that stone lore is A, not complete, and B, mm-hmm. what is included in it is politically, um, let's leave it at politically for now, motivated. Um, yeah. Although I think we can define that in a number, <laughs> number of ways. Um, but just to kind of like, at the outset, yes, there are these interesting tidbits. We understand that like there's this oral tradition and quotes from stone lore and kind of these prescriptive measures that come at the end of each chapter and that we get. But I, th- I do think it's important to know at the outset that like we learn certainly by the end of this book that that's not all there is. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, it's it, it, the stone lore is so ingrained. You said political. I'd move on to just say straight up religious. Yeah. It is so ingrained and so utterly sacrosanct that the idea that it could be wrong, the idea that it ever could be changed, is not a thought that passes through people's heads. When someone points out that there is examples of stone lore being crossed out and removed, examples of different aspects of stone lore that the character doesn't know, it literally renders her speechless, because it's not a thought that ever crossed her consciousness. Yeah. I would say this is very similar to, uh, some of our listeners may have uh, read Mistborn, where there are excuse me, tablets of information that are inscribed upon metal and sort of everybody knows them to be true. Mm -hmm. And they seem to have maybe some similar issues. Um, In this world, that kind of reminds me of a mix between Dune and The Road. Um, (laughs) One of the uh, central aspects of conflict in this world is the idea that though humanity is in some way bonded around this stone lore, bonded around this new culture that has developed, which has been able to persist against all odds through multiple seasons, there is still an other. Not just, you know, preferential for certain physical characteristics or certain genetic characteristics that are deemed ideal in the society. There is somebody that is viewed as the entire outside, the evil in some ways. That in opposition to that society. And that is in the form of the orogene, which 
We are introduced to very early in, in our main character, but we really don't get a good grasp on for a while. This is something yeah. that we really only further get to explore and even... I, even by the end of this book, we don't fully understand it, but I think we've got a much better perspective on what it is from different angles in a way that our characters don't get as they live through their lives. So we'll, if we could just, in broad brush it before we go into our first character exploration of it, mm -hmm. what would you say an orogene and orogenator is? So I guess I, I would... <laughs> not an easy question. Not at all. Um, but I guess in very broad strokes and easy terms, it's somebody who is able to use um, heat and the the various forms of that um and basically manipulate things around them um in terms of using heat differentials by you know they draw out the heat either of the air surrounding them or or, or within the earth itself and then are allowed to or able to manipulate things in their environment usually uh, earth-based and stone-based but as we sort of find out eventually there are other applications that they can put this yeah and I think as we kind of learn earliest on I would say um, that an origin is someone who has some sort of un unknown and in some ways unknowable connection with the earth um, mm. and for them it is um, it is innate you are born with it. Like this is this is something that you have from the beginning. It can be trained, um, but what is it? What is also important in kind of understanding what origins are and how they function in the society is that like that ability is seen by the vast majority of the population as inherently dangerous. Um, when you live in a place like this, like excuse me, like the still that is. Um, so um, unknowable, unpredictable, and can like spring a fifth season on you at any time where like most of humanity is going to die. And that is done primarily through massive earthquakes um, and seismic activity. Someone who has that connection with the earth and particularly when untrained cannot control how they are interacting with the earth and how they are affecting um, the earth and the area around them, like that is entirely other, as you were saying, Spencer, um, and very dangerous. Right. And the other thing that we learn relatively quickly is that the one of the main abilities they use to keep sort of the society going is that they can prevent earthquakes. Right. With their abilities and knowledges uh, of Father Earth. Yeah. So they are they are known as very dangerous especially out in kind of the the sticks right out in the boonies where the training doesn't happen where you frequently encounter um origins who or at least occasionally encounter origins who are completely untrained and potentially like very volatile um and that's the only experience that kind of stills have with them um Stills being the term for everybody right. else. Sorry, this You're, this is the sort of muggle of this whole of this whole situation. Um, we're we're going to use a lot of in book language as we go because we just can't avoid it, and we'll try to define it as as it happens. Yes. But this book is an entire glossary at the end, just gives you a hint of how developed even the language of this world is. Yeah. Um. So these these origins can be both very dangerous, but also kind of like in the right circumstances, they are recognized by society as people who 
can prevent disaster as well and are therefore also very valuable. Yeah, they're essentially necessary for a society to function and for life to go on, period, like full stop. Yeah. And so their necessity and otherness have put them in a very weird uh, cast and grouping compared yes, to yeah. everybody else. It, it's interesting that there's, they're clearly in some ways a natural development of this world, at least theoretically, that su- suits very well to endure and keep away the, um, n- the natural hazards that, that are very characteristic in this place. I mean, this is a world of where earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and any number of natural catastrophes are just a daily event you have to deal with. Earthquakes are constantly happening in certain reasons. These faults are always shifting. That the idea you can even build a society at all is practically impossible, but for this magic. And whatever these par- these characters are, whatever it is that is the nature of their abilities, it is so ingrained that they talk about that even a baby in a crib can stop an earthquake without having any thought about it. It's just that level of a natural aspect of their being. And as you said, um, society itself has been able to persist in some way by harnessing and working on this. But it's in a way of where it's con- it's dealing with conflicting elements because origins out in the sticks are actively despised. Not only due to the legitimate concerns about the threat that they can be, because a baby that can literally summon or stop earthquakes is a terrifying concept, um, but also due to a very intense religious view about what their world is and what humanity's role is in it in the eyes of their god. That this is not a god that views you as his... Well, this is a god that in some ways views you, views you as his children, but hates you. The Father Earth, as they call him, is essentially due to the crimes that humanity has inflicted upon him, killing off his son, as we learn later on, um, he has essentially created this never-ending cycle of death, destruction, tectonic activity as a punishment upon humanity. And so the Origins, who so naturally and so casually can halt this effort at God's retribution, are the ultimate affront to them, the, the, the ultimate heresy. And so both only from, not only from the threat that they can pose to their neighbors due to the punctual chaotic... Uh, scope of their abilities, but also from the fact that they stand in opposition to what is essentially humanity's um, punishment, uh, that they are despised by society and constantly under threat, except if unless they are able to fall under the scope, protection, and uniform, the authority of what's called the fulcrum, the uh, organization of managing and directing and training origins in a way that can be useful to society, at least how it's presented up front. And yeah. even at that point, they're wildly untrust. Even as trained sort of fulcrum origins, they're wildly untrusted throughout yes. the continent. And, and disliked. And disliked. Um, but particularly if they are untrained, and particularly in kind of small communities, as we will see with the first character, um, Demaya, we are going to discuss, like, they can be seen as both people to be outcast, but like more specifically, pretty much sacrifices um within within that culture mm-hmm. it's an interesting book of where it's not revealing much or spoiling much here but basically every major perspective we have is of that of an origin mm-hmm. um, in terms of pretty much all of our main characters too even beyond ones that are our perspective viewpoints in their chapters and so it is interesting that and i think we kind of need to address the very opening like 10 pages before we go into the characters because it kind of sets everything that comes afterwards but the very opening of this book is us watching the end of the world done at seemingly, we don't even know what they are at the time, but at the hands of an origin who yeah. quite literally shatters the crust and brings out a kind of Siberian trap situation in the middle of the planet 
in a way that the Earth, to the degree it will recover, will take thousands of years and probably not have your humanity left in it. Uh, and that's really our first exposure to what Origene is, and at least initially sets us in a kind of mindset shared by much of the populace that however magnificent and wonderful and wondrous these powers can be, however useful they are to this world, they also can be an incredibly active and apocalyptic threat in the event that a particular whim or strong emotion strikes an origin of sufficient power. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I find interesting is that every single uh, first chapter is um, difficult, at least. Um, and and I would say in some ways unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, and the a part a section of the book so we're gonna treat the sort of three main characters and do each arc but one of the things that that i found somewhat jarring and then came to really appreciate is um the third one that we'll get to uh with esun is in the second person and so things are being described to you whereas the other two are in the third person which i thought was interesting and which was oh go ahead mm -hmm. spencer well, I was going to say it was a fascinating read for me, because that was the main thing you guys had told me about the book, is that it was a science fiction Hugo Award winner, and it's written in second person. And then you intentionally told me nothing else. So I was going into it very blind, but it, it made for such a fascinating read, because it made it so inherently personal in a way I'd not experienced before. In some ways, it almost felt like I was, you know, I enjoy like narrative-based video games. It almost felt like I was more experiencing a narrative that I was controlling, even though I was still a passive observer, just because of how effective the use of you can be in putting you in the mindset of a character. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's very powerful, especially because, I mean, we've talked a little bit about kind of the prologue that sets you up at the end of the world, which also, you know, is is written in an interesting perspective because it is talking to you personally as the reader, mm-hmm. right? It starts with, let's start with the end of the world, why don't we? Which is very much a sort of invitation into the text. Um, and it kind of mm-hmm. comes with it's also written in the second person although i would say a different second person than the second person that is used in the rest of the book it, it is, um yeah. and so you get through the prologue and doing all of that and then you get to the first kind of chapter proper and at that point then you're in this kind of like second person that you are periodically in throughout the rest of throughout the rest of the book and that is a much more uncomfortable second person it is not calling to you as a reader, it is clearly from the very beginning co- interpolating you as something else, someone else, and someone specific, mm-hmm. but you don't know who that is. Yeah, it, at first it almost feels invasive to a certain degree, of mm-hmm. where you're almost writing in the consciousness of another person and w- looking through her eyes unwilling as she goes through all of these moments of pain, trauma, desperation, everything else. But it. It is very effective from an emotional standpoint what you endure. And it makes it all the more jarring of when you go through all of that, it then cuts, without explanation, to a third-person narrative through the perspective of a person that you've not had introduced and have no idea who they are. Yeah. In this case, the form of a tiny young girl seemingly set in an entirely different location and implied an entirely different time based on the fact the world is not ending, who all we know about her is that she goes by the name Demaya and that she seemingly has been rendered outcast by her own family for reasons that we do not know. And so let's start, as we talked about, let's start with this particular narrative um, and kind of track it through the book, partially because it is in some ways just a simpler narrative (laughs) structure to Mm -hmm. deal with. Um, But as we were discussing before, it is also, I think, where you 
learn the most about what is going on in this world as well, because you are learning with Demaya um, as she figures out what the hell is happening. And, and I mean, this book very much embodies almost like the trinity of the fates in Greek mythology in terms of the three perspectives that we get. Mm-hmm. And Demaya embodies the young girl, seeing through the, seeing the world through new eyes. And so, as you said, it gives us an opportunity to learn things with her, because as the um, as a young child who has not had much of an education or development raised in the middle of a, a Styx community in the, mid, in the southern, I think it's the southern Midlands, the north, northern Midlands. Um, Somewhere that is not the capital, let's say. Yes. Far away from the capital. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't have much perspective on the world or what her abilities are that she's only recently started to become aware of. And so she rather quickly acquires a mentor, and through him and through her eyes, we gain a, a, a certain initial knowledge and perspective on the world. The only one we had at the time, and what comes right now is unchallenged, but one that we will get a very different series of uh, viewpoints on as the story goes on. Yeah, I, you've used a bunch of words there that I'm not sure I am comfortable with and or agree <laughs> what, with. What, mentor? It, yeah. It's, tr- it's yeah, mentor true, but it's incomplete. Yeah, uh, okay. uh, sure. Uh, so we greet Demaya. Um, and it sort of starts out a little bit more pleasant than, um, than I, I kind of remembered. And, you know, it's the straw is warm and she, you know, doesn't want to come out of it and, you know, a blanket and she's coming out of the bleariness of sleep. And then you quickly find out that her mother has tossed her in the barn, uh, presumably with possibly other animals and she's being forced to, uh, be in there and live in there for an unclear amount of time like certainly an animal. weeks yeah it has certainly been weeks and i would yeah the the pleasant introduction to this situation um that you talk about bj lasts about a paragraph uh, and then we are thrust yeah. into this no and you and you're right um you know it, it it talks about a blanket that she had yeah. when she was a younger child and and some fond memories and then it says well, the blanket's back in her room, on the bed mm-hmm. where she left it. The bed in which she will never sleep again. And it's like, oh god, what's going on? This is something different. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And so she, while she is um, kind of nesting in, um, in the straw in this barn, she starts to kind of hear things off stage, essentially. Um, and hear kind of conversations happening off stage between her mother and, like, somebody else. A stranger, yes. Yes. Right. Um, and her mother's saying, well, we locked the barn door so she couldn't have escaped. And she's like, all right, well, this is getting more uncomfortable by the minute. Yeah. Um, and then it, it only, just... Go ahead, Spencer. It gets only worse as she pretty quickly deduces that the conversation she's overhearing is the one for her sale. Yeah. She has come to the conclusion that her mom has summoned, well, apparently is some version of slave trader, and is in the act of trying to auction her off. Um, and but she gets this very weird interplay between this man who has come for her and her mother, where the man is disapproving of everything that her mother has done in her mother's treatment of Demaya. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she can tell that from her tone, of, his tone of voice at this point, as well as some of the things that he's saying. But like, it is very clear that he is not like chill with what is going on here. Yeah, no. and it's sort of interesting the sense that you get of how 
her mother's been treating her, and it's like, well, it's not cold enough that she would have frozen to death. Like, we would have brought her inside if that were the case. And it's like, well, all right, well, how on earth did things get to this point? Yeah. And what what on earth could she have done to merit this kind of treatment? Mm-hmm. Right. Because she, she, she's been literally locked out in the cold without a blanket and without a literal pot to piss in for an indeterminable amount of time for reasons that we have no clue about. Yeah. And it's the point where she's so desperate for, in some ways, someone to acknowledge her as a person and respect her needs and concerns that the fact that this seeming slave trader is, repre- is reprimanding her mother for not giving her a bucket, for not giving her a blanket, she immediately starts to gravitate towards him. She immediately starts to respond well to emote towards him in a way that she clearly hasn't hasn't had an opportunity for a while. Well, you know, you need to start Stockholm Syndrome sooner rather than later. Indeed, it's a good strategy. And so he finally, this as she as her consciousness sort of terms him a child buyer. Um, this child buyer finds her in the straw, in the kind of hayloft, that whole thing, um, and appears physically very strange to her, um, speaks in a very strange manner um, as compared to what, what she's used to, like all of these kinds of things that are a little bit, a little bit off in terms of mm-hmm. what he's doing. But he is also, as you, know, as you were both saying, he sees her mm-hmm. and like he actually sees her um, in ways that she has certainly not experienced since she has entered this barn, although it's a while before we figure out why she was placed in the barn. Uh, I'm trying to remember how they described him, but almost the image I had of him was almost of a um, nearly albino in terms of his features, in terms of his incredibly pale skin, his like Mm -hmm. uh, ice gray eyes, Mm -hmm. which immediately marks him as being probably from some Arctic region far, far away from here and very physically distinct from her. But as you said, Sarah, he treats her as a person. He treats her as not a... There's nothing about him that seems to be regarding her as a commodity, or at least if he is, it's a treasured commodity. Um, And he makes every effort to speak with her and interact with her as a person as he goes about the act of not only finding her, but convincing her, letting her choose to come with him. It all could be an act, this all could be an elaborate game in some ways, but it's one she immediately very well responds to because it is a sadly foreign concept after what she's so recently endured. Yeah, and then something that we'll find out more about uh, in a, a different character's perspective, he then uh, basically touches the back of her neck and says that he's marking her, so if she ever gets lost, that he can find her. Which is uh, less creepy when you first read the book, and then when you read it a second time, is, well, that's really creepy, and so now I So much creepier, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I had no thought towards that when it happened other than, oh, that's just kind of odd. And now that I've finished the book, I'm like, oh, that's what that was. Shit. Yeah. Um, so, so it is a little different. Then you get more interaction with uh, this man and uh, Demaya's mother. Basically, how can you treat your own child this way? Giving away her coat in the middle of winter, um, forcing her outside, and um, basically... He then says, oh, I'm taking her to the capital. And the mother's like, oh, you're actually doing that. And he's like, wait a minute, you were going to sell this child to me, assuming that I was going to, you know, abuse her or sell her into slavery? Or well, kill that's... her right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's disturbing. Yeah. yeah. I, I think also this is 
you know, one of those interesting scenes in this kind of setup for what this world is, where we get some of the real sort of small but important details about how um, stills and people, particularly in kind of backwoods community, think about origins. When we have that moment, as you were saying, BJ, when um, this stranger has has kind of asked, you left her in the cold without a without a coat. And her mother, her mother says, you know, she's got a cousin who needed it. We don't all have wardrobes full of fancy clothes to spare. And, and then she kind of cuts off there, at which point the stranger says, and you've heard that origins don't feel the cold the way, don't feel cold the way others do. That's a myth. I assume you've seen your daughter take cold before. And so you have this just kind of like very subtle um, kind of introduction to what the kind of day-to-day talk around origins is, um, particularly in these smaller communities. Yeah, and most likely, as we'll learn a little bit later, they're they're probably saying Raga when young children aren't around, which mm-hmm. is um, somewhere between, I, I would, at least in this world, liken it to other racial slurs that we have in ours. I would put it with the N-word, yeah. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I would say something around there where there are people that use it when they definitely shouldn't and then the group of people that has had that thrown at them as an appellation take it upon themselves to use it in certain cases yeah there there is a reclaiming of it in some ways some of which is it's it's interesting and then we come into it later but some of which becomes a sort of like self-loathing term and some of which becomes a sort of like somewhat empowering but really a sort of like fuck the system term yes i mean from the perspective of most of society i'd say it's like the n-word crossed with a witch of where not only is it a, a yeah. term of immediate insult and condemnation, it's also a call to arms in the event that it's that, that it's said out loud. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and we do get a quick outline of what caused, the, what precipitated these actions, which was uh, Demaya almost killed a, a boy at school. Yes. Yeah. And when that happened, you know, it's just like, well, we can't take care of her. This is, we don't know how to deal with orogeny and we don't, want to and we essentially have a wild beast that is way more powerful than we can imagine among us and we just want it not part of our family or probably they also don't want other people in the community to associate Demaya and Orogeny with them. Right yes it is a sort of like we have to take immediate steps to divorce ourselves from any sort of stain of this thing that is not understood yeah. um, and seen as dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so Demaya, well, the stranger takes Demaya away and it is pretty clear that they have a very long journey to wherever it is that they're going. Right. And we also learned that this stranger is a guardian. Yes. And mm-hmm. guardians are associated and um, let's say protective of origins. Um, that, that, that is a word for it. Yeah, uh, it is. It is a word for it it. it. it is the most accurate word at this stage from the perspective that the character has. Yes. Um, and I think I think the full name of him is revealing too. It also shows how the unique naming system in this world works. Of where the guardian's name is, and BJ, if I'm pronouncing this wrong, let me know. But Shafa Guardian Warrant. Yes, that's mm-hmm. uh, the same pronunciation that the reader uses. <laughs> With Shafa being a version of a first name, the second name Guardian being essentially your use, your title, 
uh, your use name, I believe they call it, and warrant being the uh, your this the com that you call home. Which is interesting because he seems to, along with all of the origins and I believe all of the guardians, essentially live in the capital, Humanus. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of curious that that's how he was introduced, but maybe that's where he was from or his area of uh, his domain. I, I I don't know. The Guardians are so mysterious, it's hard for us to really put together much about how they work other than our limited slices of when they enter the lives of our main characters. So we really can only tease these little details that were provided now for our best guesses from what we can get get from them. Yeah, and there's a lot of other information that's scattered in this first chapter that doesn't make any sense when you first read it. And on the second reading, it's, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Okay, that's way more creepy. Um, as we mentioned before, uh, so he says he's a guardian to six, and mm. you know it's lucky that he was near here to find out about her because he was checking in at a node station. Right, mm-hmm. which we have no idea what a node station is, and we Not don't learn until maybe two thirds of the well, two thirds is a little bit much, but at least halfway through the book, what a node station actually right. is and does. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the really great things about this first chapter, at least for us as readers, is that like we have this long horseback journey to travel with Shafa and um, Demaya, in which Demaya has a lot of questions, many of which are very similar to questions that we ourselves as readers might have at this point. Um, yep. Yeah, and so we learn, as you said, BJ, that, that Shafa is a guardian to six, although it's unclear exactly what that means at this point. Um, but we also learn that they are on their way to the fulcrum. Yes. Um, which is, yeah. Which is, um, best as we can tell, located in what's kind of viewed as... How would you describe... How would you pronounce this? Humanes? 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 Yeah. Which is yeah. A, was once a political, but is now still very much a cultural and practical capital of this world. In the sense that it was once essentially the Rome that all roads led to but it's kind of given up that mil- military and practical political authority, but still maintains the rules, regulations, and the fulcrum by which the society persists, to the point that even communities that aren't under its literal political sway still pay it taxes and still rely on it for the services that allow the world to actually be livable. Um, the fulcrum itself, we don't really learn much about it in the early going, but just you know, reveal a bit about what we, know, we learned about it in the early chapters. It is... The place to which guardians bring young origins for the purpose of their training, um, where she will meet other origins for the first time. And I think that's really all we could really say about it in terms of the early part of Demaya's chapters. Uh, we'll learn a bit more later on. And I think before she gets to Eumenus, there are two uh, really important things that are uh, discussed. Um, the one of them that I essentially completely wrote off until again I went back and, and went through it a second time, which is the story of Shemshena. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other is the first uh, interaction with the Guardian that tells you a little bit more of what the Guardians are. Well, b- before we even get into those, though, uh, one I'd like to hit briefly is so uh, why Demaya's parents did what they did. Um, which we hear from the first part that they locked her away and we get the perspective that they are bad people that were essentially bringing a guardian here to execute her out of lack of understanding and fear and hatred towards origins. As we go through, though, as we as um, Shafa talks with her and Demaya answers a few of his questions, we find that, well, her natural abilities as an origin led to her 
nearly killing one of her classmates in a moment of anger and a bit of a, a schoolyard scuffle of where she, how would you best describe it, kind of iced a circle around her, including all of the surface of his skin uh, from his act of pushing her to the ground. Yep. And they'd gotten into an argument, and but it was when he physically assaulted her that she tapped into this power. Immediately, and, instantaneously, without any degree of thought other than a feeling of needing to protect herself and anger that something occurred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but that sort of is a, well, your parents can't deal with this and the other villagers are going to come after her with pitchforks because you're a danger to everybody around you and society unless you're um, taken away to something that... I'm only going to vaguely tell you about and appropriately raised. Though, um, Shafa takes pains to really tell Demaya that what her parents did was essentially the only thing they could to protect her. That if they'd shown a bit less love for it, a bit more concern for their own self-preservation, arguably the smart thing they could have done would have been to cut her throat right there in public or turn her over to the mob immediately. The fact that they tried to shelter and hide her and even do so for long enough that a guardian could show up weeks later was a profound act of risk that he clearly lays out that the fact that they did that if it was found that they did that would have cost them their home their other children their own lives or all of those together in ways that you can't even really describe so it's interesting that he's taking her away he's condemning them in some ways for what they did but at the same time he is defending them from Mr. first perspective, the scale of the hatred and fear and rage that society has for people like Demaya. Yeah. And I think you get a little bit of that, too, from the uncertainty, the, the kind of tone of uncertainty that Demaya's mother has when talking with Shafa, when it becomes starts to become clear that, like, he both sort of disapproves of her their actions... Um, but also is not going to, like, kill her child and condemn her for for having this child, too. So there, I think there's a little bit of, like, um, conflict and um, kind of second-guessing of herself that you get in the tone there, if not in the content of what she's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that there is some sorrow at what, quote-unquote, had to happen, mm-hmm. that, you know, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't the ideal situation and she sort of feels like that she did the best that she could which i you know i'll I'll say sure yeah maybe but it also seems just really so so pervasive in the society is the fear of the origin which i sort of feel like is in some ways propagated by the fulcrum itself yes Mm -hmm. yes um that origins are in danger just because of who they are and sort of their only way to salvation is through control by the fulcrum and a guardian yes and um we essentially i think the next chapter goes a little bit more into that i don't know if this was the first chapter that i was literally revolved um by but (laughs) Um, it is, I, I think, the first or second time that this happened in this book, and not the only time, was in uh, Demaya's, one of Demaya's early chapters. Yeah. So, Spencer, you said you had kind of two moments you wanted to talk about in their journey, um, oh. one of which is this sort of mythology that um, Shafa tells Demaya, 
And it seems, at least on first reading, that he tells it to her simply as a re- as a way to kind of like make the time go by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have some. It eventually some comes out that that is not the only reason that he might right. be telling her this mythology. So it's so Shimshana and Misalem. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this reads very much like the kind of classic fables that you tell children, the classic mythology that you tell children that is meant to be both an entertaining story walls and graining cultural lessons in them. In the initial part, as you said, Sarah, we read this as just an entertaining story to buy time, but by the end of this book, we get a guy's perspective on the level of indoctrination that's also ingrained in the story. Yes. Yeah, we hear the story again from a different perspective. It could almost mirror opposite perspective, really. Yeah. But uh, this, this, the story in broad brushes is kind of the reason by which origins are viewed the way they are in society and also the reason by which guardians exist. Of where it goes back to the early history of the empire in terms of time before the fulcrum, time before origins were ever used in a manner that was productive whenever else, when seemingly, according to the story, they functioned as almost just wayward monsters that upon a whim could destroy could destroy cities and bring down empires and emperors. Um, this almost had an act of pettiness to demonstrate how powerful that they were. And that one particular origin, uh, BJ name, starts with an M, I think. Uh, Miss Alem. Miss Alem. Essentially just decides on a whim one day that he's going to go to um, the capital city Jimenez, uh, which at that time was a much, much smaller community, and meet with the emperor for the purpose of killing him before the world and demonstrating his power. Yeah, and so Miss Alem goes through and kills everybody in a bunch of towns and cities, thousands of people, um, and... Uh, basically then goes to confront Shimshena um, and kill him. And so uh, Demaya starts asking, you know, why why would they do that? And actually also is interrupting with questions that the reader has. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, he says, oh, you know, he had very good control, perhaps a fourth or fifth ringed level. She's like, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, it's fine. Those are just rankings that, that we have in the fulcrum. You know, you'll you'll get used to it eventually. Um, also, we are, this might be the first time that we're introduced to season, capital S, and mm-hmm. the name yeah. of a season, Season of Teeth, which you, again, on a second reading, you know <laughs> what that is, and it's disturbing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you get this, and basically the Shafa, the Guardian, is imparting the problems of an un, uh, controlled. uncontrolled uh, origin. Mm-hmm. And I guess in my mind, I would kind of relate this to, like, Godzilla, where, you know, a, a cataclysm in a society then produces a story of what happens when you have an untamed uh, power that then uh, wreaks havoc on on, on the uh, surrounding area. And, and so it's, you know, demonizing a, an uncontrolled power. Yeah, it, it's noteworthy, too, that he starts telling her this story as she's just naturally using and feeling with her abilities as they're mm-hmm. riding along the roads to go through one particularly tectonically active area she immediately just taps down into old earth into father old father earth and just starts feeling it starts feeling how close to the surface it is listening to the earth and, and she immediately knows this and as a as a glossary term um that sort of like tapping into the earth is known in the book as sessing mm-hmm. 
and the sensory organs that they use are sesapine. Yes, which is somewhere <laughs> in the base of the skull, I think. Yeah. Which becomes important later. Uh, Again, creepily. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So he's telling us this story, and she's immediately really invested in it, and really particularly in the character of Shem Shemim, mm-hmm. who is seemingly the, um, she's like the body, the lead bodyguard or lead general of the emperor. Mm-hmm. And she who really is one of the first that ever takes an effort to understand origin and the weaknesses and limits of it. And so as this Missalem comes to do whatever he wishes upon the emperor and upon his capital, she prepares for it. She braces for this moment to the point of she basically orders the wholesale evacuation of the capital city and all the surrounding communities of all life whatsoever. So that when this rogue origin arrives upon the scene, he's left with there being nothing there whatsoever by which he can essentially kind of draw energy from. And so through this and through other techniques which were only cagely described, Shim Shim is kind of able to effortlessly defeat this origin missile and in some ways becomes the beginning of what uh, Shefa views as the guardian order based on the principles that she learns and the uh, ideas of how to defeat and control origins that she starts to embody. And it's noteworthy that Demaya is really taken and loving this story and seeing herself in the role of Shim Shema, mm-hmm. the female character, the female main character, the hero that defeats the monster. And Shefa recognizes this and asks her about this and then makes a active pained effort to clarify that, no, 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 that's not you. You are missile. You need to understand that. Yes, it is we are... The guardians are Missalem. And again, there's this use of the second person where it's, uh, you are not invisible. You can be beaten. And he pats her hand. And as he continues to say you, she realizes you is Missalem. She mm-hmm. is Missalem. Mm-hmm. Which she suddenly doesn't like the story as much anymore upon realizing this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she realizes that, you know, her quote-unquote kind are responsible for a lot of the terrible things that have happened um and uh and then we get a little bit more of the history it's it's interesting for her to really she's starting to gain a certain degree of perspective on this person that she viewed as a slave trader that she's now going with of where she's pretty quickly gotten kind of attached to him and viewing him in a positive light and enjoying his stories and enjoying their travel with each other but the moment he essentially tells her that we guardians are training under the principles that Shim Shim has set for the purpose of controlling missile and for the purpose of controlling you to eliminate them when we need to and otherwise bind them to our will. She's getting a lot more uncomfortable with this person that she's now literally chained to the saddle with. Yes. Um, and then we get a little bit of history of the Sanzid Empire, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the all-important question. Spencer, can she control herself? <sighs> oh. Uh, I mean, we're we're straight going to mix between Dune and Marathon Man with the nature of this conversation. I feel like he's chanting, is it safe to her? Um, But this is the all-encompassing question of where he starts quizzing and forcing her to deal with the idea that what the society has set, the rules by which she shall be governed and control herself, have to be embodied. They have to be managed. And she's defensive to this at first that she doesn't want to be a threat. She doesn't, she wants to be responsible and be able to control herself. That she feels like she's able to do so. That she doesn't need a, a world of guardians or whatever else constantly managing every aspect of her life. And Shafa seizes on this and he seizes on it hard. 
Uh, and as you said, BJ, he starts focusing on control yourself. And it's an important question. The most important, really. Can you? And so and... they go a little bit into the story of what happened and how it happened and how she felt when she almost iced the little boy that uh, pushed her down and wanted to copy off her test. And, you know, can she control herself when she's in danger mm-hmm. or, you know, something's threatening her? And, and he notes that that's the most common way origins are found is after they have killed a neighbor or killed a family member in a effort to protect themselves, just an instinctual emo- emotional act. And as he's telling us, telling her this, as he's asking her about this, his hands are getting increasingly tight around her arm. And can I just point out that like at this moment, so this moment is going to be very uncomfortable. It is awful, awful to read. But like the tension of this moment is predicated on in large part the weird touchiness that Shafa has had up to this entire point like there Jemison has taken pains to this point to point out how much Shafa is touching Demaya mm-hmm. but how heavy his hands are upon hers yes. they, or they roam around her it's a good point that she really is heavily describing that I mean yeah he brushes tears away like it's a whole there are all kinds of moments, just small, tiny moments of this. But, like, it becomes important as the tension builds in this moment. And this is really one of the first scenes of how effectively this author does both tension and tragedy. Mm-hmm. Of where you can guess as this moment starts to play out exactly what's going to occur. And you are utterly as helpless as the main character in terms of watching it happen. Um, and there are a lot of these scenes over the course of the book of where it is foreshadowed enough or set up enough that you are very much aware with the character what is inevitably about to happen, and then you are going to sit helpless as it, as it plays out just like that. Yeah. So yeah. He, has, he has kind of um, continued as he is doing this interrogation, really. Um, and this interrogation, I think, importantly, as to whether she can be quote-unquote human, um, he is continuing to press her hand into the saddle horn with, mm-hmm. incre- with increasing yep. pressure, right? And this never, this never lets up. Until the point at which we get this, like, really um, spine-cringing moment of all the bones of her hand breaking against the saddle horn. Um, So I want to back up a little bit because I feel like the... the, What what happens in the scene right before that happens is viscerally upsetting. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because... You know, she she's sort of calling out in pain, and he says, Now, now, calm down, little one. There, there. Be still, and be brave. I'm going to break your hand now. Yeah, yeah. And especially, like, having it read where it, it is this sort of very comforting tone of voice, mm-hmm. and he's definitely trying to build up that, that guardian nature, that he's very protective of her, very... Uh, you know, tries to establish this, I I am a protector, and I love you, and I care about you. And, and I am doing I do this that, for your own good. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to break your hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We and have to does. know that you can control yourself. Yeah. Yep. Um, and he does. With a horrid wet pop. It's the wet that really gets me. The wet oh, in that yeah. description <laughs> description is the thing that I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. And... As he does this, her consciousness, I, mean, I, I love the line, the stone beckons, as she's just 
desperate to pull herself into the earth, to disappear into the earth, to escape from the moment and defend herself with what she can draw. She just instinctually knows that she can. And as she's feeling this, as the promise of relief is just wrapping up around her, he very casually continues her lesson as he's holding her broken hand in his, that you could kill me right now. You could do that. You could draw from that. And throughout all this, he's just talking with her as she's continually trying to adhere to the lesson that he taught, has already tried to teach her of, can you control herself? As she's desperately trying to contain the pain that is radiating through her, that is drawing her to the earth, trying to escape from it. And he just continues his lesson as she does this. Yeah. Well, and he, and he is very clear in this moment, telling her, you could kill me now. Yeah. You could kill me now. Is that what you're going to do? to do is that what you are going to choose to do you can you can be free you can go find a community right now this could be the future you set for yourself this could have this could be how you are responsible for yourself as you've wanted uh and she doesn't and he continues uh that you know congratulations you've controlled yourself through pain and you know if your hand heals it will and it should you can it, and, it, unless it, i crush it yeah, yeah. that's yeah. That's how he continues. Of where he says, it'll heal, we can split it, be fine. Unless and, I crush it right now. And then... And I, she I, yells I, out, no. Yeah, I feel like this part is more disturbing than the handbrake. Yeah. Because um, he responds, never say no to me. Origins have no right to say no. I am your guardian. I will break every bone in your hand, every bone in your body, if I deem it necessary to make the world safe from you. There's just such a helplessness in her, as she's describing this, where she has no clue what is going on. She has no idea why this is happening to her. She's just looking for what the solution is and just seizing on the only thing he's given her about show control and you won't, and there won't be pain right now. You won't yeah. suffer right now. And that's yep. all she can see on because it's all that he the only out he's given her right now. And then she says why and he says I love you. Which is <sighs> perhaps the most fucked up part and there are a lot of fucked up parts of this book but like this is the kind of defining moment. Yeah. This is the, where of this relationship and what this is going to be. Um, right. Yeah. And you know he says I hate doing this to you. I hate that it's necessary, but I have to do it so you don't hurt anybody else. And yeah. that's why Spencer, when you say guardians are mentors or <laughs> anything else, it, it's a it fucked just, up mentor, but it, it is. That's what he's teaching. He's teaching her right now. I believe you mean grooming, Spencer. Yeah. I think that we are really Fine. dealing with Fair. a grooming situation. I, I have no positive connotations behind the word member when I, a, a mentor when I'm using it. It is a cult leader indoctrinating a new a new a, a new member of, the, of their group. Okay, let's um, use those terms because like I would like to keep my positive associations around the word mentor. So if you could not, that would be great. Fine. It, it is very much a general indoctrinating a child soldier into the organization uh, in terms of the kind of the nature of the manipulation that is going into this, and it, in some ways it's made all the worse to me about that it isn't, you know, a cult leader or a, you know, child a, ch a child army leader in the sense that he's a true believer. He's not, from his perspective, lying to her at all. He really does believe that this is necessary and that he loves her and that, that it hurts him that he has to do this, but that he absolutely has to and will without the, the slightest delay. That's and in some ways that makes this all worse to me that it isn't something that's just put on to manipulate her. He holds this, these words, as most utter truth of life as he's telling the release. That's how I enter. I guess, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe he is a sort of true believer. I think 
as we will talk about in later episodes, like the idea of the and what the Guardians are is so interesting and odd and unknowable in a lot of ways um, and really calculated in how it came and how that kind of like role came about that like mm-hmm. the term true believer like I ne- I don't know that I ever believed that Shafa was a true believer I don't know that I believe that any of the guardians are true believers other than in their own power I think sure. they're utter true believers in their own necessity and in the only way of life by which an origin can live in that and I don't think they s- I don't think they view that as inherently negative to origins. I think they just, they have so limited perspective on how this can work, about how the society must persist, that to them it is the only good because it is the only option. It is the Hobson's choice by which life is governed. Uh, I, I don't know. I feel like there are a couple of things that make me side with one of you and then the other. Um, <laughs> like we find Nature out. Nature of the story here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we find out later that to become a guardian requires brain surgery. And that it also requires you to be the child of an origin. Yes. Um, And so that's sort of a complicating factor of, like, what does a true believer mean that has had some complicated brain surgery before they can become what they are? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that one chapter in particular, we were left with a massive question mark as to what exactly guardians are, because the perspective we get from Shafa does not mirror at all some of the things that we get from these other guardians as the story goes. Yeah, and it seems like you know he may be a little bit more in that perspective that we eventually get of the protective of origin themselves. Sure, but again. We're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves because yeah. that is a later part of Demaya's um, character arc. But the other side that, you know, it's hard to say that they're not true believers when you sort of look at they clearly have a politics and a belief system that is separate from everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of they walk a very weird um, enforcer line um, yeah. that... I think has taken role in a lot of different sci-fi movies and fantasy movies where it's just like, well, this is, you know, they're kind of true believers, but they're also in a very weird world. Um, well, and I guess that's that's kind of part of my point. I mean, there's certainly a spectrum on kind of how they operate and we see when we, we are introduced to other Guardians kind of throughout this novel, like different things certainly happen. Um, but I do think that you both are right to point out kind of this, there is an unknown line around the Guardians because it is both a belief, like what they do is both a belief system, but it is very much a political system as well. And so it's that kind of second factor um, that kind of takes precedence in my mind when I think about Guardians. And this sort of like conscious decision to look out for a particular interest. Yeah, and so I would liken it a little bit to um, Minority Report, where there's this group of people through a technology that are essentially enforcing both something maybe important for the society, but also a political uh, agenda. Well, what they think is important for society, anyway. Sure. I mean, it's apparent that um, Origine is the thing by which this society exists, and the fulcrum in some ways works under a, a accepted fiction that the origins are in some ways, it's an organization of origins to control origins by origins by which they can be protected. 
but it's made very apparent from this earliest of chapter that to the degree that is true, to the degree to which Origi makes the world go round, it's something that the Guardians... It, it, it is a magic by which the Guardians allow to exist at their whim and by their law, and only that. That if it is a power, it is a power that is wielded by people, but controlled by others. And those others are the Guardians. And so what I will... And, and this is actually kind of like one of the only things I remember about the second book um, that I don't think is a spoiler at all, but I do think kind of enriches this conversation a little bit in terms of kind of what is coming in the series and in this kind mm-hmm. of universe um, is that like in the second book, you get a vision of um, an alternative way of being and an alternative way of functioning in the in this particular world um, mm-hmm. that complicates the narrative. Well, I, mean, I, think, I think in some ways we get that over the course of this book of when we're going to see um, our second character. Uh, how are we going to pretty pronounce her name? Sinet? Cyanite. Cyanite. That, yeah. that works. I'll, do, I'll go with that. Cyanide. <laughs> yeah, cyanide. Spencer, I'm surprised you don't know that it's a mineral. I did not know that was a mineral. Yeah. Um, but we see in her times really operating outside of this society, and then later through Asun's perspective of, hey, another community that has come about to exist in the middle of the apocalypse, that this society works, and that I think in some ways is indisputable, but it's not the only way it could have gone, nor necessarily the best way that it could have gone. The right. degree to which it is necessary it is a result of dealing with prejudices that don't that are perhaps insurmountable, but certainly don't need to exist. And that we see many ways by which, if those can be overcome or diminished or abolished, society can function a lot better. But who and, knows? Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, notable in both of those examples, although one of them lasts longer over the course of this book than the other one. Um, mm-hmm. Notable in both both of those examples is the distinct lack of guardians anywhere near them. Yep, though notable also in both of those examples is happening off screen the casual carnage that uh, Origines are still able to inflict. Um, that some, certain of our main characters have very different perspectives and different, very different levels of care upon. I mean, over the course of this book, we see Origines at whim or at intent or even by accident kill literally probably billions as this story goes on certainly millions directly yeah i don't know that there are billions of people in this world but i don't know they describe there being like millions just in the city of humanes so i'm it's hard for me to say how many people there are yeah i guess i would sort of liken it to maybe rome back in the day where yeah there's there's probably a large population but it's one of the few places where there's a impressively large population five million that Anyway. Give me millions, though. Maybe. <laughs> um, and then, again, we get a little bit more into a little bit information about seasons. And I meant to write down all the seasons that we find out about. We got Season of the Teeth. There's also a reference to Boiling Season. Okay. Oh Going to God. the glossary in the back. Yeah. Um, yeah, I never did that since I did listen to it. And it, it's just uh, another of the... Yeah. There's a fungus season. There are a lot of seasons in this. <laughs> I think it's important to just point out for the record that um, Demaya did control herself through the handbrake and the grinding afterwards. And, and the resetting. Yes. And, um, and, and it's so all of that to, like worked, I guess, sort of. And it's made very apparent, I think, at the end of it, how much this was not random. That this was very much, from his perspective, an aspect of her testing and training. Mm-hmm. The first one, perhaps. Of where his line about, you could kill me right now, is immediately rendered false when he says... Yeah. You need to know that I would never lie to you. Look under your arm. 
And she looks down and sees that he's got a blade right up into her ribs, right to go into her heart. And that mm-hmm. there was never a moment that he was not in control of the situation and was not intentionally setting up either her end or the next aspect of her continued life. And we learn l- later, um, over the course of her time at the Fulcrum, that this is a common tactic. Um, yeah. That people come in, whether they have been with Shafa or with some other guardian, um, that she will frequently see origins around, um, kind of in the early stages of their training, who have their hands bound because they have been splinted post being broken in this sort of test of, can you control yourself? Can you listen to me? Yeah, it's, a, it's a statement of the lesson of the power of the, uh, guardi- of the power of the guardian's lessons about how effective it sticks in their psychology, that decades later in these people's lives, at the mere mention of a guardian, they all start flexing their hands. Mm-hmm. They all start yep. feeling the pain in their yeah. joints and hearing the wet pop once again. And they're That's... also deferent. Um, like, per a- any guardian that sort of meets any uh, Braga slash origin sort of very quickly gets a, oh, yes, you know, yes or no sir kind of response. Mm-hmm. Right. They're immediately answered, immediately deferential, no hint or even a thought. I mean, their, their responses are so immediate they can't even think about defiance. It's just so ingrained that the first response is to immediately submit to their will. Yeah. But he binds her hands, they continue along their way, um, as Demaya is now sitting in abject pain, rocking in the saddle as her hand just continues to pulse, wanting to go back home as he basically just starts to return to the same kind of warmth he started the conversation with, like nothing ever happened. As he yeah. talks about the new home and the new friends that she's going to have, about how she'll be free of fear. Um, yeah, totally free of fear, because nothing bad happens at the but fulcrum. He also eventually grinds her back into what I think is going to be the last lesson of where he essentially says, um, are you afraid of me? Do you fear me? And she says, yes, good, you should. I'm not sorry for the pain I've caused you, little one, because you need to learn the lesson of pain. What do you understand about me now? I have to do what you say or you'll hurt me. And, and... You'll hurt me even if I do obey, if you think you should. Yes. And that's just terrifying. <laughs> that is the world that she is entering herself into. And that is just like... That's that, that's zapping the rodent whether he goes for the cheese or not goes, goes for the cheese kind of situation. Yeah, that's how you get uh, crazy rodents. And that's well. possibly <laughs> how you get crazy or at least broken origins. Yeah. Um... Yeah. So he swears it's not random. He swears that there is a method to the madness he's inflicting about her. It's all just about control. And that as long as she accepts his control, she never need worry about being harmed again. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he says. That's what he says. It's that is only... what he says. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he's doing his best to groom her and that, you know, sort of happens. Um I feel like not much happens between that and their arrival at the fulcrum. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. there's nothing There's nothing really else. She kind of gets to the fulcrum, and we kind of get her, in, in our next encounter with her, we get her in the midst of her time at the fulcrum. We don't get her real introduction to the fulcrum, her coming there or anything like that, but she's, like, not advanced in her studies at the fulcrum, but she is, like ensconced in what the experience is like yeah and i guess i would probably liken this to hogwarts slash (laughs) you know (laughs) fuck that sorting hat i don't want to get yeah right like that is the yeah jk rowling is on the like sipping wine in the background like fuck that but (laughs) (laughs) 
it's very much like learning about the world and taking classes yes. and yes. Um, and it is grit. this kind of like um, the, living in the dormitory and kind of getting that whole thing. You're, no, you're absolutely right about kind of the the fifty thousand foot view structure of <laughs> this existence. Yeah, is, mm-hmm. I guess not. Is you the know, same. the if particulars. You, yeah, if obviously. you're in an airplane and you squint and tilt your head. Um, <laughs> They Would look reasonably like, similar. It, uh, it, it is a school and they're learning magic. Yes, I agree with those points. School for, what's his name? School, Xavier's School for the Gifted or something uh-huh. like that. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's a... Mm-hmm. They're getting basic education yes. and being taught magic. And there's mm-hmm. a kind of like progression to how... It, a progression and a hierarchy to the skills that they have. There are kind of tests around that. You mentioned... Uh, one of you mentioned earlier the kind of like the rings are how you know what level people are and what they're doing and things like that. But that is after you have become, you have done your time as a grit. Right. And I guess I think that there's a very good parallel between like a military school. um, And so it's not until you get out of that, that you become sort of a recognized member of the organization. And then within that, there are different levels of that hierarchy once you become, you know, a full origin or or Mm -hmm. whatever you were up until, you know, the the four or five ringer where, I don't know, Spencer, you're like an E5, something like that. My my dad actually did go to military school and he talked about how for the first weeks that he was there he was a plebe and that's all he was mm-hmm. until further notice he had no other name and no other identification yeah um yeah. So it, very very much this this recruit you know wants to do this or whatever like going through boot camp yeah. um so so yeah and then there's some uh bad algebra that you know i think just sort of gives us a sense of you know what what all is going on um we get a little bit more in the way of stone lore and then we get sort of the the boarding school military school uh harassment yeah hazing harassment and everything else um and uh then demaya basically forms a slight bond with one of the other students and gets back at her tormentors um and uh we sort of vaguely uh find out that Demaya gets uh, a couple people kicked out of the fulcrum or yeah. they are not seen from again um, from the, the that's resulting from uh, her getting back at them by basically planting uh, her own possessions in their stuff and accusing them of stealing her things and, and getting back at her. And there's some double crossing and things going on. In all honesty, when I first read this book and even on the second time I didn't really remember I sort of expected this this kind of like hazing and then revenge and then retribution story to be more important to the story um, because it does take up a large chunk of our time with the Maya yeah I think it has a very important role which again you only realize probably on a second read and it's subtle that um and i get you know we're we're getting beyond ourselves i think but uh where node maintainers come from and that oh, either that's fair. that's fair yeah 
crack and you know the this other boy become node maintainers or they were killed and i think both are very important to the story yes um but you don't realize that they're important to the story until somewhere close to the middle or end or something like that yeah and it's very hard to figure that out on the first go no you're absolutely you're absolutely right and i was kind of thinking about it only from the perspective of like of um demaya's arc but of course in the kind of larger story you're absolutely right this is one of the first kind of even hints and it is a very subtle hint um that we know something bad happened to them but we have no idea what that is um and it does um, be, maybe not become clear later what actually happened to them, but we are presented with a couple of options that are none of them good. The yeah. horrifying. So, yeah. <laughs> so it does say so. One of the kids returns with broken hands, right, mm-hmm. and haunted eyes. Right. So that's an interesting way of going through some corporal punishment. Yes. And then two of them never never come um, back. Never come back. So never. it says Jasper does not return, and you know he's sent up to a satellite. In the Arctic, Arctic. Um, maybe a a node maintenance, Um, and then then the other thing which I thought was interesting is crack is never mentioned, never seen or mentioned again. Yeah, it's noteworthy in this chapter too, where it expands the list of latent threats. Because remember correctly, in this chapter we don't see a single guardian. This is all just the fulcrum that we're now seeing for the first time. Yes, in terms of the rigid rules of culture that indoctrinate these kids about you are an origin. That is bad. The world hates you. So you have to adhere to certain standards of conduct and interact with other people to keep you alive. And that we are going to teach you those in the most brutal way possible so you understand the constant threat you are under. And then, having already now learned that the Guardians will just kill you on a whim if they think it is necessary, we now know that the organization of Origins, for Origins, by Origins, will also very casually remove you if they deem you in any way from what they tell you a threat to what they are and how other people will perceive us through you. I would push back a little bit on the bi origins. Um, well, they say, <laughs> they're saying it is. Yeah. I think, you know, what we what we get at least in my view is that of is the the indoctrination is such um that you you can have this self-policing, um but mm-hmm. it is so far and so many generations down. Um, that it it comes from the Guardians originally, right? Most likely, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess we don't actually get that story, but, like, it doesn't really make sense to me that, like, the self-policing from the beginning of the origins comes to this conclusion. There has to be some kind of cataly- catalyzing factor there. I mean, they suggest... I mean, they, they suggest that the fulcrum was in some ways created after that story of... Pronounce those two names for me, BJ. They sound so damn biblical. Um, Mizalim and Ashishena. Thank you. Um, Fulcrum was in some way created after that event, but it's suggested by the Fulcrum itself that it was as much about controlling them as about self-preservation. That this organization provided them essentially the only means by which they could be tolerated and survive in this society. And that they are violently and determinately protective of that. And that it really only continues to exist on a whim. That they really, and this is part of the indoctrination and part of the idea that you could only be under us, no one can exist outside of us, which is about, I think, as much the growth and, self, and the growth and interest of the organization rather than actually protecting origins. But mm-hmm. the story they tell is that we're constantly under threat. If any one of us does anything wrong, we all could die. 
that the populace could turn on us and we will be we will all die in an instant. And all of you need to understand that all need to govern yourself from that perspective of, of it's now no longer about your individual interest. It's about the survival and persistence of the fulcrum and you as an agent of it. And that's all straight indoctrination, likely bullshit. As we talked about early, this societal hatred of origin serves the fulcrum's interest as much as it does anybody else's. Yeah, and it's so interesting to me because, like, that sounds, in a lot of ways, that sounds like some guardian bullshit, right? It Although does. I can, I can certainly, I can certainly see a situation, you know, in the early stages of the kind of indo indoctrination interplay and self-preservation interplay between sort of guardians and origins and all of this, where like there is some kind of um, kind of devil's bargain, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that is voluntarily that is entered mentioned. into, right? Yes, which is okay. But the and I hadn't really thought about it until you were talking about it in these terms, Spencer. Is the idea of the fulcrum? I mean, what is the fulcrum? I mean, we know what it is and kind of how it functions. But like when we say the term "quote unquote" the fulcrum, what does that mean? Like who who is the fulcrum? We don't really know how. We have no concept of what the leadership of this organization is, yeah. or who it answers to, or how it is governed. We really don't know. I mean, there are orders being received we don't know from where, governed by an organization of guardians who we don't know who's actually giving them orders or by, by which they're choosing to enforce. We have had such a limited perspective through the eyes of the characters about what is who is set, who is the taskmaster of this world? Mm -hmm. We don't even, even in the terms of the of the society of the um, the city they're operating in, the empire that exists. It is an empire. It has an emperor, but everybody seems to agree is powerless. No one really knows by which authority that the society continues to operate. What kind mm -hmm. of oligarchy is in place? And that really seems to run through all of these organizations of where, at least from the perspective of our characters, who are all pretty low down the totem pole. Right. It is entirely opaque who they're answering to or who's deciding who they whether they live and die tomorrow. And we actually find out a lot about that in the next chapter with Demaya. We do. And I'm leading into. We so so yeah, we find like we get loads of conflicting information and not helpful information. <laughs> But information. Sure. Yes. <laughs> we get a data dump, uh, of, dump of things. Yeah. And I guess. So we essentially find out that the Guardians have a power structure that's separate from the origin power structure, which is separate from the political power structure. And it is unclear where each of those power structures rank in terms of the day-to-day -day functioning of, Sarah, as you said, the fulcrum. And what I guess I would say is I would argue the fulcrum is the network of guardians and origins throughout the Sons of Empire. And yeah, I mean, I think that that's true, but that does not answer the question of kind of where the orders come from, like where the kind of day-to-day -day operation and like orders and like, where is that coming from? Um, sure. Like and have it like define. I, I think that you're right. Defining it as this kind of structure of um, origins and guardians and like all of these people who are functioning across kind of the stillness and the empire is right. But that does not answer the question of like where is actually the locus of power. Sure. Right. And I guess I I could kind of liken this, and this might be off enough that that you don't like it. But <laughs> go on. So so you know the direction of an organization 
is, I would say, very hard to pin down. And I think it's an important question. But we've all been through an excessive amount of schooling in many people's eyes. Um, And each of the universities that we've been at has some direction. Yes. Um, To use your metaphor, I feel like the the only direct recognition of power and authority we have in this book is utterly irrelevant to the ultimate administration of the organization it's in. Um, like the, the use of rings. We meet the ultimate ring wielder in terms of a 10 ring individual, the most powerful rank you can be acknowledged in, what every student is aspiring to be. And he has zero administrative or political power in this organization whatsoever. He has no yeah. control over even, over, he has little to no control over his, even his continued reproductive function. Yes. Uh, um, and we never meet any of who those people are. We don't even meet middle managers. Like, if, who is it that gave out the order to go clear out some coral from a harbor in a nearby eastern town? We don't know. We've got no idea how that functions. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's why I feel like equating this in some ways to a university where... We've met the people... professors, but not the admins. Right, and it's like, well, there are very, very famous professors that have loads and loads of money and do a lot of self-directed things. And then they can be told, you're going to do X mm-hmm. by completely random people. So um, I can give a very personal example where we had a bunch of materials that were stored in, in one building. And um, about a week before we had to have them moved, some person, uh, basically a building facilities manager, emailed uh, the professor that I worked for and said, hey, you need to, we're going to be moving your stuff in a week. And he was just like, well, why didn't anybody tell us? This is my stuff. This is important stuff. Like, what's going on? And, you know, why don't I have any say in this? Mm -hmm. I'm essentially paying for all of this amongst other researchers. What's going on? And they're like, well, we needed to do this. And so the decision was made that, you know, we would tell you before it happened but you know we decided like six months ago that this was going to happen Mm -hmm. and so it is but that like and let's also point out that like that decision is not a decision that was ever made by the quote-unquote head of the university like it was not made by a chancellor or a president or something like that and so like this right diffusion it was of power yeah separate committee that you know you could eventually track down who exactly made the decision or the meeting that that took place that that decision was made at but like it was my presumption a cascading series of things right. where they're trying to recruit new people so you know the chancellor set out a mission that we're going to improve x part of the university and that meant that you know this cascading set of things had to happen and then some vaguely middle manager person was just like all right well we need to do this with this building and some low level manager just basically went to a bunch of these world famous professors and was just like well you need to move your shit you have like maybe five days mm-hmm. um you know we'll do it for you and this is where it's going to be now and then you really go from the chancellor um to perhaps the real power, at least in, in my situation, to a sort of like shadowy board of trustees yeah. um, that has absolutely no fucking thing to do with the university at all. Um, and is and then you have the, the facilities and management, which are the guardians that do all that of the actually, actual lifting and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and make things happen. And, and, yes. and, and they're and like really a their word is law. Union. Yeah. 
<laughs> and they, they have their own rules and regulations and they just sort of do things and they tell everybody how they're going to do this. Oh, listen, mm-hmm. when the floors are getting cleaned in my office, like everything stops. Like that is that is the number one priority is to move out of the way for the floor cleaning because God knows what will happen if you have something um, in the path of said floor. This yeah. is also clear an organization that does not believe in tenure because as far as I can tell, not only can the individual the, the equivalent professors be fired, they also can be executed at whim by the facilities and services. Yeah, yeah that's I, a I, university I don't want to be a part of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure there is no. Uh, retirement or the retirement <laughs> oh, is, is. is six it's feet a very, deep. It's a very lengthy with a limited pension plan. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about this last chapter because it, it is easily one of the least explained and mysterious, I think, of the entire damn book. Um, but and, Demaya... and consequently one of the like most important and sort of understanding other narratives that are going on. Yep. But I think, we, I think it starts basically immediately after Demaya's counter-hazing event where she got two other students permanently removed and another one crippled and avoiding her that she's kind of left to her lonesome nobody's really bugging her anymore and as long as she does what she's told and doesn't cause a scene she's kind of free to be ignored and roam as she wishes spencer i really like how you say no one bugs her anymore when the book (laughs) says they're not trying to make friends with her i'm going with what i said i'm happy with it okay um so she kind of becomes a, a solo adventurer exploring out the various various parts of the fulcrum, which is an odd, well, I'd say it's an odd university, but I've been at countless universities which do have semi-abandoned buildings that are just covered in dust, uh, and she goes into those. Yeah, this had a little bit of a name of the wind yes. feel to it. This was a very name of the wind kind of chapter. As she's roaming around through forgotten buildings that have seemingly been boxed up, at the moment that students, with the students' clothes and items still in the room, is closed away. Um, she's continually exploring whatever else until one day, a person jumps in front of her in line. A person who should not be there, though they're dressed as a grit and acting like a grit. And though no one else is asking any questions or seemingly has any problem about this random insertion into their lives, Demaya, Demaya wishes to know what the hell, who the hell this person is and what they're doing here. Yeah. Um, and we meet, uh, I want to get her name right. I'm trying to get to it. I don't remember what it, her it name is. It's Oh, yeah, it's Beanoff. Beanoff. Yeah, yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, and, and so basically she demands to know who she is, why she's here, what she's doing. And they have this sort of weird, uh, back and forth that's basically like a, you can't tell anybody I'm here or what I'm doing because then I can bring out that, you didn't immediately report me when you weren't sure who I was, and that's gonna get you in trouble. This is the like the worst blackmailing. This this is like ten year old blackmail. <laughs> it is ten year old blackmailing. I know, right? <laughs> like, but it also, really tracks. It really tracks. I do think she's right. Well, we have seen the sort of like swift and harsh retribution that comes down in this particular space, and so I think that the threat is real. Um, and I can imagine and, that being very scary. Right. And so this girl's full name is Beanoff Leadership Humanist. And that leadership and is, is the real kicker there. Right. And so basically this is the first time that we, or the second time probably, that we 
um, interact with a leadership use cast. Mm -hmm. And we basically get a little bit more of a, this is the, she being off is part of the ruling family of the capital city. Um, what? One of them. The, 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 the emperor, to the degree that exists, is utterly powerless, but she seemingly, if there's a collection of noble families, she's in the, the strongest one. Yeah, and so essentially she is of the oligarchy that is presumably ruling the entire world as we know it. More indirectly than in the past, but still practical. And I guess I would say that's unclear too. Um, as we said, like the power structure of the fulcrum and the empire and essentially everything in this world other than a little narrative on a small island is completely unclear. One thing that is made clear in this chapter that I find very interesting is that I think we can agree that the fulcrum is the basis by which the empire continues to exist. The reason by which Sanzid culture is now the predominant culture around the world and the way they've been able to survive as many fifth seasons as they have. And yet, this child, educated, experienced child, who has seemingly no limit to what she's allowed to learn and explore, of the ruling class of Yunus, knows jack shit about what's going on inside the fulcrum. And that seems very intentional. Yeah. Um, and it's unclear why that's happening, if that's going to be part of her education at some point, or if it's specifically withheld because um, if you... If you were to well publicize it amongst this ruling oligarchy that you were essentially taking children and turning it, them into the workforce slash weapon slash military arm of that that makes the empire what it is, there might be some difficulty with that. It, it does raise the practical question of how powerful and how independent we believe the fulcrum is. I mean, we don't know. We assume the guardians of, well, we assume reasonably that the guardians have absolute control over the fulcrum. But besides them, what level of political power and what level of independence does the fulcrum possess in society? Does anyone at does anyone in the leadership of Yunus get to order the fulcrum to do any particular thing? Does Yunus have any oversight over the, or is essentially the organization that was created to be a servant of the realm? now really serving the realm as it wishes, at least under the oversight of a collection of murderous terminators. So when you say that clearly the Guardians have power, I don't think that's as clear Over as the Vulcan? Yeah. Well, I mean, at least over the individual members. Whether it's over the organization itself, I have no clue. Yeah, that's what I was saying. I feel like that's a lot less clear because the conversations that uh origins seem to have like their orders seem to come from other origins and we get a junior versus senior hmm? i said yeah seemingly but they don't really know know themselves right and so the guardians seem to be a little bit separate and i guess to bring up the a scene that we talked about earlier essentially a knife at the side of origin so i i guess i i feel like there's some sort of shadowy organization that is in control of more things and leadership humanist seems like a reasonable place for that to come from um unless you know the guardians are just sort of that shadowy organization on our self-creative and policing but it kind of seems like there would be an outside source that is performing the creepy brain surgery and things like that 
Um, and, and, I, and I think this chapter demonstrates that if they are indeed in power, there's at least a limit to their knowledge and what they have oversight over, in that she's here because there is a notable gap in what she's allowed to learn and what, she's allowed, what she can find out about, and that there is a quite literal void in every drawing and every aspect of history concerning something in the middle of the main building in the fulcrum. Mm-hmm. I think it's yes. even, it's even yeah. in Mainz, right? Uh, it's in something like Mainz. It's in the same shape that Mainz is, but mm-hmm. in a different part of the uh, fulcrum. Um, and then the other thing that I think is interesting is there are a separate class that we sort of find a little bit more about, which are the lorists, mm-hmm. which I would guess are the keepers of the stone lore and other information, which you know sort of feels like somewhere between a meister and a priest class. Yeah, a meister and a priest with individual examples roaming, ranging between kind of like a Homeric bar, a Homeric storyteller and a wandering minstrel or bard, depending on the level of entertainment that's being tied into their individual profession. Yeah. Um, anyway, so basically within Demaya's roamings previously, she figured out that there's a hidden part of the uh, fulcrum that she hasn't been able to find an entrance to and has been trying to explore and Binoff wants to go there. Um, and as is a little bit surprising now that I think about that, essentially very shortly after they meet and somehow have time to do this, it's like in an afternoon. Yeah, there's not really much of a gap here. It's that, hi, nice to meet you. I'm blackmailing you. Let's go into the what possibly is the most protected and hidden and secretive place in all the world. Fine, yeah. good, let's go. Because um, I mean, Binoff makes the pains, tells her pretty quickly that the thing that I can't find out about, I have a general idea of what category of thing it might be in, and it's something not something purposefully not good or hidden or even evil that society has talked about that was here in the heart of Humanes before it was built, and was the reason that Humanes was not built until it was, was where the fulcrum was specifically placed because of it, and no one's allowed to talk about it, or learn anything about it, or even discuss it. And that is a secret that she and the leadership class cannot tolerate at age 10. And so let's go find it. Yeah. Yeah, let's go find it and see what it is. Um, and... They do. Yeah, they do. And... (laughs) It's weird because... It's very weird. It's a hole. It's a perfectly hexagonal hole in the ground which extends down into the infinite with what appear to be tiny little syringe-like needles sticking out of all the various sides of it. Yeah. In a room that is massive and cylindrical and domed and full of electric lights in a way we've never otherwise seen in this world. And can we point out that it's a little Narnia-like because you have to get to it through a closet? You do. Good call right there. You have to pull a secret lever to go through a closet and find it in an otherwise sealed from the outside room. I was going to say, and it's more interesting than that because you have to be an origin to access. True. Yeah. 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 That is interesting um, too, given that the guardian is in there. Well, yeah. Or like you don't have to be, but like essentially you either have to know that the brick is there, but the way to know that the it. brick is there, yeah, is to sense it. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I. You say that the Guardian is there. I don't remember if the Guardian sort of follows them in or not. Not clear. Um, And I'm just, you know, skimming through a little bit of this part, and I'm reminded of the curses that they use, which maybe we'll come back to. Um, Uh, Rusted. Yeah, Evil (laughs) Earth, rusting. um, 
Also interesting fuck. choices. Plenty, plenty yeah. of fuck too. Uh, yeah, Spencer. Okay. Yeah, sure you sure you appreciate that. You like going blue very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we meet with a guardian that we know is a guardian. Uh, I think one of the few female guardians that we meet with, mm-hmm. um, who basically says, "Oh, how lovely that you're here." Um, and the, way, and the way they're always smiling as they talk. No, yes. the, the nicer the guardians are, the creepier it is. Um, and oh, the yeah. more you know that something bad is coming. Um, yeah, and so basically yeah. it's like, okay, well, you know, we're glad you're here. You know, if you had told us you were coming, we'd have been happy to show you around. Sure. But, you know, for right now, we don't want you to hurt yourself, so why don't you come with me to my office? Did, did y'all assume that we were never going to see Ben off again after this and that they, she was being taken off to be executed? I don't know what was going to happen to her, but I wish we were not going to see her again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the tension was really damn high throughout this scene of where Binoff first really plays it off pretty well for Tim in saying, oh, you know, I, I, it's not her fault. I made her come here. Oh, and my family knows exactly where I am and are, are probably looking for me. So we should go talk to them, right. which is a she really, really smart call. She really tries to kind of yep. pull rank here in ways that, like, from what we know of the world, like, maybe would have worked. Maybe. Up to this point. <laughs> yeah. This, um, but Benoff X is stage left, and Demaya is kind of just left in the middle of the Guardian's office for her to return. And she says, you know, I've summoned Shafa. He's going to be here soon. It's a uh. good thing that he's in the city. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really is. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then we find out what it is, that it's a socket. Which, that's the weirdest possible name. That's never the name I never ever would have imagined for. And it, the name itself just make, it makes me confused and uncomfortable. A socket? Yeah. I can say, a socket for me just has inherently electrical in, implications, and I've got no other assi- use for it. I think and that's probably get, fair. Okay, yeah. Oh, did it call to you? Yeah. Did you answer? What the fuck are and we talking about? And now it's like, yeah. what? As, as we start this weird... Essentially, possession chap- a, a section of dialogue is Demaya quickly realizes the Guardian's not talking anymore. She's using a different voice with a different intonation. Someone is speaking through her. Yeah. And I, I think the best we could do is just quote what she says because I can't make any other sense out of it. Uh, well, there's there's quite a bit. Pick a few choices. You picked a few um, good cho- choice ones to start. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, there's the angry and afraid, ready, readying for the time of return, and then we go to... Yeah. It did what it had to do last time. It seeped through the walls and tainted their pure creation, exploited them before they could exploit it. Mm -hmm. When the arcane connections were made, it changed those who would control it. Chained them, fate to fate. It made them part of it. It hoped for communion, compromise. Instead, the battle escalated. And in... Mm -hmm. I was going to say, and in this, this guardian is... Starting to get a little bit handsy with her again. Yeah. Um, I mean, handsy in the sense that she's about to break her hand again. (laughs) Yes. And Shafa shows up, and then she continues. It speaks only to warn now. There will be no compromise next time. And Shafa immediately reacts, basically ignores that Demai is even in the room, immediately tells the Guardian to control yourself while walking up behind her. And upon seeing that she doesn't immediately do this, he proceeds to, and... Tell me if I'm describing this wrong. Jam his hand into the back of her neck. Mm-hmm. 
pierce through her spine and rip out what appears to be a small metal box which is placed there between the skull and the top of the spine. With his hands, blood flying everywhere, including on the Demaya. That yep. about right? Uh, yeah, yeah, something that, that I feel like yeah. you like. Uh, <laughs> the sound of crunching bone and popping tendon is undeniable. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. So, she really does. Yeah. She does this. She does the automatopoeia sound so well. The pops, the wets, Ugh, the crunches. <laughs> um, and if, then, if you could see me right now, like I am squirming uncontrollably and like very, <laughs> very out on this whole thing. And I would like to get us back eventually out of this nonsense um, to a discussion of pronouns, and that would be yes. really helpful to me. <laughs> yeah, we can definitely do that. But I think the, the fascinating thing is. Um, it's unfortunate that this happened. Um, and then it's like, I would like this removed. So one of the things that I think is interesting is that Shafa is fairly high up in the guardian ranking that this possession thing is not weird to them or surprising. It is so common that they all have the exact same reaction when they see it. Of where yes. like three or four of them enter the room and they all just kind of shake their heads and just say, unfortunate. Yeah, no, it's this like, is like this, standard operating procedure at this point. This is a Tuesday. Yeah. Right. And so then it's just like, well, I was afraid that this would have turned out worse. Um, and then we sort of find out, as I sort of mentioned, like a, a bit about how guardians are made. Um, there is an implant um, and basically the the cover or explanation that's given is a guardian's connections with his assigned origin uh, origins can help to stave off the worst but Time that doesn't sound right Time I don't remember <laughs> that's what it is T I M A well that's, that's what it says I just I don't remember how it was pronounced in the the audiobook had allowed hers to erode foolish um okay so yeah, it's just like the that, now it sounds words. like the bonding between guardians and origins are important for something. Yes, mm-hmm. and and in terms of bonding, we do again see it heavily in this chapter of how Demaya views Shafa mm-hmm. and how he acts around her in his very oddly conflicting manner. And again, this just this to me again just says that there is some element of genuineness to this. It's just the warped and twisted way the Guardians choose to express it, of where after she's gone through this, there's literally the blood and brain matter on her face from the the Guardian who died in front of her. Shafa takes her into her arms and cuddles her and lets her cry upon him in a, what this book resembles, a tender moment. Um, Sure. Yeah. And she is fully convinced now that he loves her, that he is the closest thing she has in her life to a tender individual who legitimately cares for her. Whether she's right or wrong is to be judged based on what we see in later chapters and a certain measure of interpretation, but she clearly unconditionally believes it right now. Um, And then she is reminded of him touching the base of her skull back in the barn where he found her. Mm -hmm. And he said, duty first, something that will make me much... Uh, make me more comfortable. Mm-hmm. So again, we hearken back to that first creepy, touchy moment where he did something with her head, and maybe, and presumably, this is the connection that helps the guardians not go off their fucking rocker and start killing people, which is creepy. Yeah, and so this is also when we kind of start 
well, when we get, like, A, um, nothing is really, like, there is going, even in the aftermath of something has happened to Binoff and this guardian has been killed in front of us, no punishment that we know of is going to be visited on Demaya. Not directly. Uh, not directly. But where we end up is that, like, sh- she is being forced now um, in a little bit of, like, prove yourself so they can't get rid of you um, kind of manner. She has to take her first ring test to move out of being a grit, and she has to do it now. Right. With, with, right. A, ve- with a very implied threat that this is the only opportunity we're giving you. That yes. If you don't pass now, that's it. We need a proof right now of your control, given what you've seen. Yes. Um, and I think that the um, the last kind of, well, the last, in my mind, important point in this... Say, why don't we leave the uh, immediate scene before her going to the first ring test? Okay. To the next chapter. Leave oh. that for the next one. All right. That, that is the kind of transition, right? Well, right. Well, one point to end on there we should discuss, though, is is how Shafa tells her about taking this test and what he says to oh, her. Oh, that's creepy. Sure, it, yeah. Uh, well, it, yeah. It, well, it, he, he's mentoring her, so oh, it's okay. Oh, for fuck's sake. It, it's a word, and it's not wrong. Um, <laughs> it's, one of, it's, again, creepy as shit, but he tells her that she needs to take this test, and he tells her in the sense that, I might find the quote, I need you to live my compa- my life is so f- please pass the oh you're going with that being okay well that's one of the really creepy weird parts but <laughs> there's it's like more. are you are you feeling okay I'm all right good well I need you to do something for me I'm gonna take you down the hall to one of the crucibles <laughs> and there you'll face the first ring test I need you to pass it for me and that is gross yes it's just like just everything about this is such a grooming, abusive relationship, oh, and yeah. it's oh, it's very awful. uncomfortable. Yeah. No, and it has. I mean, it is. It it plays out in a certain way, I guess, in this book. But it has all of these sort of overtones, which I think is why we are or undertones, I guess, which is why we are struggling a little bit with the language by which to talk about this relationship, mm-hmm. um, which that indecisiveness about kind of what to call it is also a part of the discomfort of the relationship itself. Yeah. It's, I think it's very purposeful, too, in how the yes. Guardians are setting up this relationship. Yes. They want these characters to live in this constant series of internal conflict about the nature of their connection. Uh, it yes. adds to their constant being on edge. It adds to their need to rely on the Guardians for some measure of control and certainty. Because even the relationship by which their life and death is governed is opaque and confusing to them. The only certainty is whatever I tell you is law and you obey it. That's the only actual recurring certain maxim they can govern their lives by. Everything else, we're just left to debate it like the characters. And I think this is the other thing that we, we get repetitions of it isn't right. What they're doing to her. What mm-hmm. this place does to everyone within its walls, what he's making her do to survive. Um, and then, will you do it well, for me? She still loves him, but that isn't right either. Um, and then, again, she she does, you know, she can't look at him and say this, not without letting him see that it isn't right in her eyes. And so this repetition of what is happening isn't right um, comes to a head in the different 
uh, perspectives that we're given in yes. this world. And the kind of like dawning realization because she doesn't have any other frame of reference here. Um, she knows that it isn't right, but what would be right? She has no mm-hmm. idea what that looks like. Right. Yeah. And so um, as we'll get to in, in the other arcs, they in the uh, narrative of the book essentially come together at the same time yes of all all of the perspectives that we see are coming to the conclusion that it, what is happening in the world isn't right mm-hmm. and then um it's a tortured game to get there though because even as she realizes that this isn't right her training and conditioning allows her to immediately justify yes of where the moment he shows a degree of understanding to her when she picks her name if he gets what she's going for there she immediately responds he does understand she bites her lip and feels fresh tears threaten it isn't right that she loves him but many things in the world are not right (sighs) oh and then it just gets worse oh yeah (laughs) it does it does it could that's that's kind of the recurring theme around this book of where okay that happened but don't worry it gets worse yes um we have we have new depths to get to And so we're going to leave the very, very end of this chapter um, as the kind of transition for the next episode. Um, So a little bit of a cliffhanger here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and leave uh, Spencer with, you know, his, my good girl, Shafa says, and smiles holding her close. Okay. Why am I I being (laughs) framed as the guy who's justifying this? I'm not. I just used a word that wasn't wrong. It is a version of a twisted mentorship. Okay, Spencer. All right. Well, I think that's all we have time for today, really. <laughs> Thank you, yep. Sarah. I appreciate it. BJ, take us out. Um, yeah, so there are so many more things that we have to talk about, and we will get to them in our next episodes. Um, and as you're listening to, to us chat and go through different books, you uh, may find out that we are part of the Mangum Talks podcast channel. Um, that has quite a number of other offerings. Um, Spencer is a main feature in many of them. Um, he has been doing a marathon series of podcasts with uh, Lee, uh, one of our other hosts, doing the GOT Got Questions, uh, which is wrapping up very soon as they go through the final season of Game of Thrones and the um, tortured story arcs that that, that is. And um, supposedly there are some other podcasts like Mangum Hoops and Mangum Laughs that may or may not make a return, but life seems to have gotten in the way of a lot of other ones. And our third um, podcast offering, which comes out semi-regularly, which is Whiskey on the Weekends, um, where myself, Spencer, Lee, and Levi Baxter uh, get together and drink some whiskey and talk about various things uh regale each other with tales of our uh time in mangum as well as argue about what the best uh cuisines are and uh spencer every so often comes out with in tales of insanity that is his life um and we enjoy those and you can find all of those podcasts on mangumtalks.com um or itunes stitcher podcast addict whatever program you decide to use to consume podcasts and if you have any comments suggestions 
or um, other things like telling Spencer that his use of Mentor is really disturbing, <laughs> you can click the Contact Us link at the top right of MangumTalks.com and voice your displeasure. Appreciate that, BJ. Uh, folks, <laughs> we'll be back next week with another episode of this addressing the second of our main character perspectives through, again, pronounce this for me, How we, what's the pronunciation we're agreeing with for it? Cyanite. Cyanite. Fine. That'll work. We will be yes. back to discuss Cyanite and probably other aspects of the world that she operates in. Uh, because with her character, I think I think of all the characters, we probably spend the most time with her and really see them, uh, some of the most terrain as she goes about her various explorations of the world. Um, looking forward yeah, to it. Mm-hmm. We understand a lot more about the uh, origins, orogeny, what it is, what it can do, and a little bit more of the insanity and structure of the world. And a first opportunity to really see a way see a perspective in defiance of it and see an alternative to it. Whether that works or not, we will see and we will talk about. But, till then, everybody, had a blast. Looking forward to next week and hope you're all reading along with us. Alright, I guess. Bye, y'all.